Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. You're listening to the Devils and Details Markets podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here with David Scott. Great to be here as always. And we're also here with the fantastic Julia Lee, equity strategist at Bell Direct. Hi, Julia. Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure. It's great to have you on. Um, now, this week we're going to be talking about a few things. One, uh, we'll start off talking about the, the big Aussie bank short. Uh, so short uh, bets on, on Australian banking stocks have been building up uh, over the last uh, few months. Uh, and we'll talk about what that, how that might be playing out for those guys who are um, determined to see the, uh, or who'd like to see the, the, the price of Aussie bank stocks fall. Uh, we'll have a look at uh, the outlook for the Australian dollar uh, in terms of the data that's been out this week uh, and some commentary that's been, uh, been around on the outlook. Uh, and we'll be also looking uh, briefly at the environment for retailers um, after West Farmers announced its uh, $1.3 billion write-down. Huge! Uh, on target uh, this week. Um, so, um, and of course, look, we always want to make sure that we're um, uh, conscious of the, the interests, of broad interests of our readers, so we're going to be talking about the Sydney bar scene uh, specifically um, towards the end of the show. So, uh, so stick with us. Um, now, I'm going to start off with banking stocks. Now, this, u- this week, the U.S. stock market rallied on the expectation that banking stocks would deliver uh, better returns or improved returns over the, coming ye- over the coming year because it's now starting to look like we're entering a period where we'll see rising rates um, from the U.S. Fed. Uh, the ASX, I think the S&P was up uh, 1.4%. The ASX duly followed uh, 1.4%. Overall, the financials index uh, on the ASX is up 14% from its lows in February, Um, and yet uh, throughout April we've seen increasing uh, amounts of dollar bets against the the price of uh, of Australian banking stocks. Uh, Now, Julia, I'm going to start with you on this. Uh, What's your take on the Australian banking sector, Um, and what do you think the forces are? Let's start with what the forces are that are um, supporting the share prices at the Sure. So I think in terms of banks, you know, you can build both a bullish and a bearish view at the moment. And the bullish view mainly comes from domestic investors watching the interest rate fall and looking for alternative ways of getting income from their assets. And that's becoming increasingly hard to find. I mean, it's been a very popular trade since the global financial crisis, this hunt for yield. And while over in the US, interest rates are looking to rise a few times this year, over here in Australia, it's exactly the opposite. So um, from a yield perspective, banks do still remain quite attractive to domestic investors. And just very um, briefly, I think one of the most interesting things is that bank sector dividends over the past 37 years have only gone down three times. So just looking at those three times, <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty amazing statistic. Um, one was 1987, the stock market crash. Two was the 1990s recession that we had to have. And the third was, of course, during the global financial crisis. So, you know, these reasons were largely due to poor credit risk practices and also external liquidity events. So 
You know, there's a lot of talks about the sustainability of dividends, the amount of gearing that Australians have, and I guess that builds the bearish scenario where a lot of international investors for a very long time have been bearish the Australian housing market and hence bearish Australian banks. And certainly short positions and short interest have been building. So once again, a spotlight, and I, I think we're going to talk a little bit more probably about those short positions and sort of, you know, where they might be headed. So I think at the moment it is time to be cautious on the banks. What we have seen in 2016 is very much um, a range trading sort of um, scenario for the banks where it's been very easy to buy Commonwealth Bank below $70 and then you look to sell it around 78 towards the $80 mark and you could have done that a number of times in 2016. I guess the question is whether it's going to stay in that range or we, whether we are going to see a catalyst um, for bank shares to break out of the ranges. Let's just go through the basic, some of the basics of shorting. If you're, uh, say, a hedge fund and you've decided that this is your investment thesis, you're going to short say, the big four. Uh, you borrow some stock from an institution. Uh, you uh, then uh, sell it out onto the market, on-sell it at, that, at the current trading price. You're betting it will fall. Then you buy it back, and then it, uh, you will trouser the, the difference, right? That's absolutely right. So, you know, instead of buying first and then selling as your second transaction as you'd normally do in a long position, short position's the opposite. So you borrow the stock. Your first transaction is selling the stock. So you're selling it hopefully at the highest price in your trade. And then as the share price falls, you're looking to buy back at a lower price. So buying low, selling high, except reversing that transaction order and making a profit. But it's when the price starts to move against you that it gets interesting, right? Painful, yeah. Um, I guess there's a reason why this has been called a widow trade. And that's because, you know, in the markets, one of the things I've found time and time again is that you can be right and still lose a lot of money. Um, and timing, I think, is a crucial component here. I mean, no one's arguing against, um, you know, Australians being leveraged to the housing market, the, the record... Um, the record ratios that we're seeing in terms of um, people's income to income their to to um, their debt, um, but you know markets do remain irrational much longer than um, you know you can remain solvent. And it's one of my favourite quotes by John Maynard Keynes. Um, so I think the key here is the catalyst. Um, what is the catalyst? And the timing is important in terms of taking a short position. There's no doubt that the steam does seem to be coming off the residential housing market. There's a lot of uh, attention at the moment, especially in terms of new apartment buildings and the oversupply in uh, certain parts of Sydney as well as Melbourne and Brisbane um, and the risks from that residential property exposure. Um, so I think at the moment, you know, serviceability is not a problem. Um, but I think once the unemployment rate starts to rise, that would be one of the things that I'd be keeping an eye out on if I was looking at shorting the banks. Which leads me nice, nicely over to David. Um, David, from a macro perspective, uh, you, would be, you would take a bit of a different approach top down at this. Um, what's your take on, on where the pressure points are for the Australian banking sector at the moment? Well, my opinion is definitely one of the key ones. Uh, you know, you've got uh, falling interest rates, uh, and that is expected to go and occur for at least probably the next six months, if not the next year, and rates are expected to remain low. Uh, but as Julia pointed out rightfully, uh, you know, the big pressure point for the banks will come if there's a spike in unemployment. Uh, and from the macro perspective, you know, you look at what will be the catalyst for that. 
and you look to our ginormous trading partner to the north being China, and that would be the key as to, uh, as to what would probably happen with our domestic economy. So for me, from a top-down perspective, looking at what the risk would be, looking to see you know, one impact into the next impact on the banking sector would be that there will be some sort of turmoil in China, uh, smashing our national incomes. That would go and then, of course, uh, make it a lot... Uh, the negative impacts on the Australian economy would be enormous. Uh, you would have you know, unemployment would rise... When you have all those kind of things you know, culminating, there's going to be some issues with serviceability of loans, and that's what the banks are, are banking on. And I think David touches on a, a key point there, and I guess um, it's related to China, um, but more around bad debts. Um, and I suspect that, um, that there's more bad news to come from the big four banks. If we have a look at bad debts, yes, some of the banks we have seen a rise in their bad debt provisions, but not to a huge extent. Um, and if we do see some of these loans becoming problematic for the banks, then what we are going to see is um, the banks needing to raise capital, and that, of course, is going to constrain growth in terms of the banking business, um, as well as increasing the risks for investors in that space. So um, I think the unemployment rate's a great one, but I suspect that um, before that happens, because it does tend to be a bit of a lagging indicator, that um, we will see something... Um, coming through on the bad debt front and just watching that very carefully because uh, we know that foreign investors have had a part in borrowing money from the big four banks as well. So we haven't heard too much around that, but I suspect that that's going to be uh, something that we'll be watching closely over the next two or three quarters. David, in terms of some kind of disruptive uh, event out of China, uh, Beijing has proved itself uh, uh, over the last couple of years, as as the uh, economies uh, slowed from you know seven plus uh, percent annualized growth in terms of GDP down to where it's heading to now, which is looking like uh, more about like six and a half, which is still enormous, um, but it is it, it is coming in. They've proved themselves um, pretty capable at making sure that they keep things steady. In your opinion, what is the kind of uh, uh, event that we might see? that uh, could uh, really spook markets um, coming out of the Chinese data? A big outflow in our capitals, uh, capital flows from, uh, from what we've been seeing in the last few months. Uh, I know there's been a relative stabilisation, but uh, the markets were um, fearful. Uh, like I've not seen in uh, a long time in the, uh, the early start of the year when we saw the, uh, the capital outflows that were, uh, were emerging from China. Uh, the biggest threat, though, is a financial crisis developing. Uh, and you look at when you have a whole lot of uh, you know, historic events, almost all of them culminate in a big economy with a big financial system which goes sour. Uh, and a lot of people looking at the, uh, the financial position of uh, a lot of these banks in China at the moment, who they've got loans out to. Uh, it's very murky as to, uh, to what level of bad debts provisions there actually are on the books at the moment. The official figures are less than 2%, but... I've seen some, uh, some commentary where it says that uh, no, it's you know, tenfold that level. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, you know, although that people talk about China being a very closed economy, you know, they're so, every, the rest of the world is reliant upon China for the resources demand and now you know, increasingly for services. If there was to be a financial crisis in China, then the ramifications, not just for Australia's banking system, but the global economy would be enormous. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Don't uh, forget you can subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, see our coverage at any time on businessinsider.com.au and follow us on Twitter at BIOz. Look, um, after uh, talking about um, uh, the risks in China, I just want to have a look at um, 
uh, something that feeds um, uh, very closely to that, which is the demand uh, and the strength of the Australian dollar. When we see lately, when we see um, bad news out of China, the Australian dollar over the last couple of years has tended to fall. Uh, you know, Australia is uh, China is Australia's biggest trading partner. Um, and it's uh, it, that um, relationship, that trade relationship, is built up through the course of the mining boom. And of course, now Australia's economy is very, um, still very leveraged. Even though we're going through this period during the election, it's all about trying to d diversify the economy and, um, and, and you know build up new sectors which will catch the fall off from from the from the mining boom uh, falling away. But still, China is there as our biggest trading trading partner, and that, that's not going to go away. Um, now, obviously, the Australian dollar, very important input uh, into the performance of the uh, overall economy, most important transfer price in, in, in the economy. Um, and this week, we've had a bit of action. Um, I think the biggest thing was, uh, was Glenn Stevens this week uh, was um, insisting that nothing really needed to change, change in terms of the inflation target. Uh, he had a, it's probably his last speech uh, as governor before he um, steps out in September. Now, him saying that we didn't need to change the inflation target, the Aussie fell a little bit, only a little bit, maybe 20 basis points or so. But let's talk through uh, that movement and how you see, um, Julie, I'll start with you, um, how you see uh, the inflation picture and trajectory for the Australian dollar over the, uh, over the medium term. Sure. I think it's funny that while talk in the US in the last few months has gone from ultra low inflation for an extended period of time to now um, figuring out how long the Federal Reserve might be able to tolerate high inflation before pulling the trigger on raising interest rates, whereas the conversation here in Australia has been quite different and the inflation risks um, to the downside, um, benign inflation and markets talking about another rate cut here in Australia as early as around July or August, more likely August, and perhaps even another cut. I mean, it's quite interesting seeing some of the forecasts out there in the market. I think um, most people are predicting that the cash rate here in Australia will be at 1.5% by the end of the year. There are some forecasts in the market for one and a quarter percent but I think today it was um, Morgan Stanley which came out with a 1% target. Um, for interest rates here in Australia. So that's extremely bearish. And I think that's a key conversation to be having because we know that that weaker Aussie dollar has an impact on the market as well as um, individual stocks as well. So um, looking at that weaker Aussie dollar and international investors do play a huge role in terms of the Australian market. We are seeing uh, an environment which still has relatively low volumes going through. So as the Aussie dollar moves, you know, the international investors do want the Aussie dollar to move up so that they're not losing ground from the currency impact of their investment here domestically. Of course, a weaker Australian dollar is mainly going to be driven by the US currency at the moment and what's happening there rather than what's happening over here. Um, but that weaker Aussie dollar, you know, focusing in on the impacts on tourism, which have positive implication, exporters, um, companies that do make earnings overseas. So, so watching companies like, you know, Ardent Leisure, which does have a big exposure to the US, um, here domestically, event, hospitality and entertainment, which is cinemas as well as hotels and resorts. So looking at that tourism story, and I think that's going to be a con continuing theme. There was a, a note from Deutsche Bank earlier this week, and the headline that we put on it on Business Insider was just quite simply, Deutsche Bank sell Aussie. 
they explained in this note, and David, you you wrote about this, that there um, there is uh, a, a looming situation in, in markets which, um, as they say, sh could trigger a structural uh, break in flows. Now, there's a lot of moving parts in this, um, but bond spreads, um, that is the difference in the, um, the, the rates between, say, Australian 10-year government bonds and U.S. 10-year treasuries, um, these could start to now um, play a significant part in movements in the Aussie dollar and, and I suppose, market demand for Australian dollar uh, over the coming months. Talk us through that. Yield, with, uh, with one word. We were talking about bank stocks earlier on and the, uh, the inherent demand that uh, Australians have for, uh, for yield in a time when yields are uh, diminishing around the world. Uh, and that's one of the key drivers for the Australian dollar. There's a whole lot of different factors as well, as you pointed out. So, and, uh, one of them, as uh, ANZ went and pointed out, the, uh, the AAA credit rating as well uh, is underpinning demand at the moment. But uh, no, the difference with, uh, with the bond yields, you know, if you start seeing the, uh, the, the difference between Aussie and US narrow any further, and it's already under 1%, uh, and that's a rarity uh, in the last few years at least, uh, the narrow that becomes, the, the yield advantage that Australia has, and uh, the encouragement that we give to offshore investors uh, diminishes. And this, as that collapses, uh, if, presuming that it does, and I think at this point in time, I'm not sure what's actually going to go trade flat with, uh, with US 10 years at the moment, but there is a risk if the, uh, the Fed does hike you know, a few more times, which is uh, not my base case scenario. I think certainly there's, uh, there's, there's more likelihood that the Fed maybe does one or two more and then pauses for an extended period of time. Potentially, and I hate to say this, potentially having to reverse those moves because you know, working against other things like demographics and, uh, and heavy indebtedness uh, that the US, like a lot of developed uh, economies, is suffering with at the moment uh, makes me wonder whether they continue hiking. Uh, but no, that's, that's the yield advantage is one of the massive things with Australian dollar. It's had that over a lot of uh, no, AAA rated currencies and a lot of, uh, uh, no, say, US dollar, yen, euro. It's always had that yield advantage. Uh, if that diminishes any further, then it's going to put downside pressure on the Aussie. I think that the thing to remember there, um, and Deva comes up with a, a very good point there, is that this is all dependent on pretty much the consensus view that we will see the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates by two to three times this year. Now, the Federal Reserve hasn't always done what the market thinks it's going to do. And I think um, it's important to keep in mind that if that doesn't happen, then the views on the US currency, the Aussie dollar that people have at the moment, that you could see, you know, the opposite happening. So it's quite interesting. A lot of the forecasts in the market right now are for a lower US a lower Australian currency, higher US dollar. But remembering, you know, underpinning that is pretty much the market's view that we are going to see two to three rate cuts this year. That's right. And uh, rate hikes this year. We, we, we've talked before um, on here, we've, we've touched on this in, in previous episodes on how the Fed, uh, you know, gives an indication to the market, but then has been forced by basically the lack of traction that monetary policy can achieve in the economy, particularly on the inflation front. So overall consumer prices, but also wage prices. Uh, monetary policy has not it's been taken taking longer for it to work much longer than would be anticipated by I suppose the traditional models uh, that are out there it has it has been extraordinary so the Fed now uh, I think last week they were saying that most members of the board uh, believe that June um, it will be the time that um, they'll be able to move by another whole 25 basis points um, 
but what we've seen has been the data, uh, and Glenn Stevens does the same kind of thing. Remember, he told us all to uh, chill out, wait for the data uh, in December. He said we should all just chill out, wait for the data uh, in the early new year, and then we'll reassess. Uh, so the data in the U.S. has not been forthcoming uh, over the past 18 months to allow them to deliver on the uh, timeframes for the interest rate hikes that they were um, that they had been signalling before. Absolutely. So I feel like we've we've seen this story before, where we are expecting the Federal Reserve to hike interest rates, and it hasn't happened. And in fact, it's you know led to volatility in terms of markets and doing the opposite to what a lot of people expected. Um, and that's the U.S. side. But I think fascinatingly, here in Australia this week, I mean, it's been a big week for the 10-year bond yields in Australia, reaching a record low. 2.07, I think. Yeah, um, so that has massive implications as well. Um, and just bringing it down to individual stocks here in Australia, you know, one of the things that we're watching is, um, and I'm watching, is the insurance part of things. Because if you have a look at a company like QB Insurance, which is probably the most exposed out of the insurers uh, to bond yields, around about 65% of QBE's earnings comes from investment income. And if we have a look at the split of that investment income, around about 30% of that is Australia and around about 30% is the US. But if you have a look at the actual investment income, because of the higher yields here in Australia, the income is predominantly coming through from the Australia part of the portfolio. So we talk about these low bond because yields. Because the US uh, component is doing nothing. Absolutely. So we talk about these bond yields, but there are also stock implications. I mean, Insurance Australia Group, about 25% of, um, about 40% of its um, earnings comes from investment income, um, whereas stocks like AMP and Suncorp Midway actually get a positive offset in terms of the life business, so they're not impacted as much. Um, so there are pretty big implications, I think, for Australian investors, um, and some pretty big um, pretty big views, I think, underpinning a lot of people's view on the currency as well as where interest rates are headed, which may not necessarily come to fruition. So I guess the, the key point to underline here is that in thinking about this over just the medium term, uh, which would be you know between now and the end of the year, uh, if you're looking at specific assets and, and the trajectory of things, stocks uh, individually, You've got to ha you've got to probably have to formulate a, a view on where you think the Fed is going to be, uh, and where you think um, Australian interest rates are are going to be in in, in relation to the Fed, uh, and whether that monetary policy those mon monetary policy active uh, actions can actually have the um, impact that they're designed to have, and that I suppose most markets would expect them to have. Absolutely, and I think one of the interesting things um, that have, has also happened this week is that we've seen gold prices down every single trading day this week um, on the expectation that the Federal Reserve will increase interest rates and that the impact that's going to have on the popularity of gold as an investment and the potential carry costs there. But then on the flip side, you see these massive hedge fund managers like Stanley Druckenmiller, George Soros, building gold positions. So, you you know, on one hand, prices are going down in the short term at the moment. But on the other hand, you're seeing some big investors out there in the market actually accumulating gold positions. And that tells you a lot around, I think, the consensus market view versus the potential um, for it not to go the way of consensus. Let's quickly touch on, on CapEx, uh, the CapEx data, data that was out this week. CapEx, 
it's a you know it's a labyrinth um, a labyrinthine release. Uh, there's all sorts of layers uh, layers to it, um, and when it came out in the market, there was a lot of talk about whether it was good or it was bad. I mean, the headline number looks terrible, but you know, when you look into it, there are all sorts of reasons for for you to say that it's not so terrible. David, you covered this uh, on BI when the data came out. Why don't you talk us through it? The quarterly capex release has to be one of my favourites. Uh, even though going back to my old uh, old self as a trader, it was one of my favourite releases. It's almost a guaranteed bank for me, so I've got a fond place in my heart for it. Um, look, as to how to go and interpret the uh, the figures today, uh, they were weak, but they could have been worse. Is probably the best way to sum it up. Uh, you know, the inputs into GDP were not as weak as expected. There were very, very modest signs that uh, that there was a pickup in non-business investment expected in the years ahead, and I do say expected because this is not actual figures. This is what people are saying they're going to do. Uh, but in the in the meantime, you've got this entitled wave of, uh, of of mining sector investment, which is expected to continue to go in decline over the next couple of years. Uh, and for all that, then the talk about the rebalancing the economy and the uh, the need for non-mining sectors to pick up that slack. There is, they are, but uh, it's such a minuscule amount. It's not going to really make a difference. It, it's going to be a drag on, uh, on Australian GDP for the next couple of years, at least. You're listening to the Devils and Details Markets Podcast from Business Insider Australia. Um, now, um, I promise we are going to talk about bars soon. I, I promise, but bars make up an important economic uh, release that we cover every month, and that's uh, retail sales. Um, so let's uh, talk about the business end front, and then business in, uh, end in front, and then we'll get to the party in the back. Uh, very shortly because we all like talking about bars. Now, so the environment for retailers, uh, West Farmers, right, the um, big conglomerate across a whole bunch of sectors, Richard Goiter, CEO, had to come out with um, what he said was not one of his better days. Um, I can imagine this was a very difficult decision, uh, but he announced a non-cash write-down in um, the value of uh, target by $1.3 billion. Absolutely huge number uh, when you're talking about an asset right down in the Australian uh, in the Australian market. So look, a lot of it was about competition that Target is facing. I think they were careful to position it as it was competition from Kmart, one of their other uh, one of their other supermarkets. But overall in the retail environment, uh, competition has is doing nothing but strengthen. Even when we get occasional bouts of consolidation uh, like uh, we're seeing uh, in um, the electronics retailing sector uh, lately, um, but you know we're getting these little bouts. But the competition is just continuing to increase very, very hard for retailers to lift prices because, um, particularly with the the entrance of um, entrance of, um, of of foreign chains, uh, which uh, you know are working off vastly different equations in terms of their cash flows. So. Uh, there's another small little part, one of my favorite little details about the challenges for the retail sector over the last few weeks. It's been really warm. Um, it's been fantastic. We've had this Indian summer here in Sydney in particular, you know, 28-degree days, no rain for weeks. Um, but what it means is nobody wants warm stuff, right? So nobody wants their winter snuggies and all that kind of thing. Um, so big outlets are left with all this stockpile of stuff, warm jumpers, um, that nobody wants. So, um, Julia, uh, so looking at the uh, retail sector, how do you think the last quarter reporting season is going to play out and who do you think uh, might be interesting to watch in the weeks ahead? 
Look, I think in the retail space you have to look at what's happened in the past and that's certainly where there has been a big factor in uh, the difficult discretionary retailing environment, especially for, you know, clothing. Um, and then you have to look at the amount of shorts in this space and say, well, what's going to happen um, going forward? Have we reached sort of the peak bearishness in the retailing space. I think the competition is a theme that's going to be constantly underlying this particular space uh, for a long time, and that's not only the consumer discretionary sector, but also the consumer staple sector, where we are seeing um, intense price competition be between the, the big grocery uh, makers, and that's going to be a negative for the whole sector. But um, I think in terms of the clothing and the weather and the impact said, I think the question I'm asking myself now is in terms of timing. When is it time to turn and become less bearish because... We know there's been no rain. We know it's been pretty warm. But it will get cold. It's freezing today. <laughs> today in it's freezing. Um, I had to pull out my winter coat for the first time this season. Um, and the shorts have been building. And we know that um, once the bad news has passed, if there are big short positions in some, terms of some of these retailers, um, that we could see a, a pretty violent move, move up. So some of the stocks that I'm watching in that area are Kathmandu. The bigger question I have to ask is... Um, you know, it hasn't been a bad retailing environment for the Harvey Normans of the world, the JB Hi-Fi's on the back of this housing boom that we have seen here in Australia. But I think as there's more talk of less stock being um, sold on the market and growth sort of rolling over, um, is it going to be a more difficult environment for the likes of the Harvey Normans and the JB Hi-Fi's of the world? So they're the type of questions I'm asking in terms of the investment portfolio. And I have to say that retail is the hardest sector um, I'm finding to actually be long on at the moment. Right, interesting. Because uh, one of the other issues, uh, and David might throw to you on this, uh, is obviously we're in this uh, historically low uh, period of wages growth. Uh, and even though, you know, sure, we have low interest rates, but people's wages aren't going anywhere. And um, and we have, you know, low inflation, but people still aren't getting ahead. Um, how do you think that feeds into the overall picture for um, consumer confidence and people feeling that they're comfortable parting with their money on a on a week-to-week -week basis, maybe splurging on a, a, a new um, device or, a, you know, a bit of a, a, a upgrade to some of their um, kitchen items, etc.? There's been a bit of a conundrum. Now, you look at uh, what's going on with the... Uh with the consumer confidence ratings, whether it's the uh, ANZ Roy Morgan survey or Westpac's uh, monthly survey, uh, they're saying that uh, the confidence levels are above average, not uh, no, not euphoric or anything like that. We're not uh, no, no shaking down the tree in excitement. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not uh, it's not weak as well. But then when you look at the retail sales figures that are coming out, uh, whether you want to adjust them for uh, for price movements or not, and they've been weak, uh, constantly weak. And as Julia touched on, there's uh, and, and yourself, there was a a lot of competition which is coming to the marketplace, particularly in the clothing sphere. A lot of uh, big uh, big multinational brands that are coming in here and you know, sort of shaking up the establishment. Uh, a big thing too that uh, you've got to remember is that you know you've got record low wages growth. It's it's still above inflation, so you've got real wages growth. But uh, real uh, average weekly earnings, which we'll get an update, I think, in the next uh, week or two, uh, they went backwards in the last quarter. So that means that people have got less income in their pocket each week. You know, this is uh, 2016. You know, you've got less than what you had last year, uh, which I think is is something that people have got to understand as well. Like, uh, and, and 
with the housing market in particular, you know, that's gone and boosted certain sectors of the uh, the retailers. But uh, if there was to be some sort of you no know, slowdown or a sharp slowdown in the housing market, and, and look, to be honest, we're not really seeing that at this point in time. Uh, it's just surprised a lot of people. There seems to be you know, like a renewed uh, you know, bid in the market, uh, particularly in you know, Sydney and, and to like a lesser degree Melbourne. Uh, but if that was to go and dissipate as well, you don't have the same uh, same feedback, the positive feedback there, then uh, there'll probably be a few struggles. Look, um, one of the things that uh, most Australians, and this is an easy segue for me into uh, our last little segment here, is uh, most Australians will not compromise on, um, and that's uh, dropping a, a few bucks um, over the over the bar counter, um, uh, or or maybe a bit more than a few. Um, so um, uh, look. Um, we're all in in Sydney, you know, global city. Uh, you know, we have lots of visitors here. We want to show them around. Um, and uh, there's been a few big changes in the in the bar scene here in um, in well across Australia, but been very prevalent here in Sydney. You've got this new craft beer uh, wave. You've got this the rise of whiskey bars. Um, you know, so if we take it back to you know, um, like one of the centres of gravity in, I suppose, Sydney social life, which is Ryan's Bar, right? Um, right in the middle of the financial district, it's a sort of, you know, the crossroads, it's outdoors, there's a bit of shelter for when it's raining and people can still have a beer and talk outside. That's one of the few places that you can still smoke in little corners of it, you know, but 400 metres away from the bar. Um, I have heard it described as a bit like Moss Eisley Spaceport in, uh, in, uh, the, in the Star Wars movies, you know, you will never find such a wretched hive of scum and villainy but uh if, you know ryan's is kind of the um the the cornerstone i suppose of, of sydney working one of the one of the cornerstones of sydney working life do you still go there julia yes i do <laughs> actually i was there yesterday um it's been an extraordinary sunny winter and you know when the sun's out in sydney you don't want to be stuck inside. You want to be outside enjoying the sunshine, beer in your hand or a wine and, you know, talking markets and talking things. So Ryan's Bar certainly at the centre and, of course, um, if it's raining, you head across the road under shelter. And then uh, yesterday we were at uh, the Republic, the rooftop bar, where they've, you know, taken the roof of the top of the Republic. It's called Taylor's, I think, and... Um, yeah, it's no. not, a, not a bad joint, that one up there. It's, uh, mm. it's surprisingly good. They've got good chips as well. Um, and um, and the other place, which has just become a firm favourite of mine, maybe I shouldn't be announcing it because um, at the moment you can get in without a reservation. It's got the best views in Sydney. If you're if you're going <laughs> to name name this place, you know, watch out. You know, is is it owned by a listed company? You know, should oh, I be buying no, shares no. in it? It's at, at the Museum of Contemporary Art, and downstairs they've just changed ownership of the restaurant there. So if you're looking for a lunch place in the sun, great food, reasonably priced, you're looking out at the Opera House. You've got the Harbour Bridge next. To you, the sun shining. You know, this place is called Grey's, and I just love it there at the moment. Just one more <laughs> um, is a place right next to One Bly Street, um, underground where the old Celeste uh, Chinese restaurant used to be, is a new place called Hubert's. They've turned it more into a French bistro, fantastic wine list if you like French wines, and a beautiful space as well. Warning though, um, the, uh, the wait can be up to three hours, I think. 
Yeah, and they don't take bookings. So get in early, put your name down, and then go somewhere for a drink and come back. You'd be parched after three hours. You wouldn't be able to go and sustain that. Well, at least I wouldn't be able. Um, talking about Ryan's bar at the, the uh, start, if you want to go and see like a sign of true consumer confidence from the financial markets perspective and the financial uh, sector in Sydney, you go to Ryan's bar. That will give you the clearest indication of how people are feeling, whether they're bullish or bearish. I remember being uh, down that bar in you know, pre-GFC days and there were people who would go and hop into the, uh, the fountain there and be spraying around champagne and things along those lines, you know, literally like you'd see at the end of a Formula I One. I remember Grand Prix. seeing you in that fountain. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. But uh, and it's a bit more sanguine now, now these days, so it's uh, not quite as, uh, as bullish as it used to be. So it gives you pretty much of a true indication of how the, uh, the people are feeling at the moment. However, you know, it does tend to be one of those indicators that works both ways. If you see a bad day on the markets, they're going to be wanting to go to Ryan's Bar to commiserate. And if it's a good day, you go to celebrate. So yeah, It depends whether they're still standing or not. You know, when, they, when it's been a bad day in the market, you see, you see a couple of stockbrokers slumped in the corner. And, uh, crying. Uh, look, look, yeah, not, not, not quite crying, but uh, no, just you know, crying to the beer at least. But uh, for me, like, I'm not really a, a massive like, a trendy bar scene kind of guy. Like, I, anywhere from around work within about a 100-metre radius is perfect. Um, ideally, downhill uh, is always good as well. Uh, but look, I love going out of Key Bar. It's uh, down in front of the uh, the Customs House there, and then also Customs House Bar is is just great for uh, for a beer. It's outdoors as well. You can have a pint there as well, which is a, a rarity in Sydney nowadays. So yeah, it's uh, it's not too bad. One of the big things that we've seen has been like through like I suppose the the renaissance in Surrey Hills and the growth of sort of hipster bars, maybe over the last decade or so. Um, there was a lot of places up there that, you know, introduced, you know, and the craft beer came along with it, smaller bars, you know, the Clover Moor sort of Melbourneization of, you know, I, I want it to be like Sydney. I don't need my Sydney to be like Melbourne. I can go to Melbourne for that. Um, but, you know, we had this sort of transformation of, of, of the pub scene. Um, do you think we've reached the, the top in terms of that? Has it gotten too trendy? Is it, you know, have you been to places where it's, you know, the the bartender has, you know, too many tattoos and a bad beard and you just want to go to somewhere where somebody will give you a, a schooner of pale ale and um, and have a yak to you. Yes, there's a bubble. There's a bubble in hipsters. <laughs> uh, so short hipsters. Uh, in fact, me being uh, no tattoos, no... Uh, no uh, facial no, hair. F- well, no facial hair in particular yet. Exactly right. That's because I shave. But uh, look... Looking around, it just seems to be the same old, same old, and the whole hip strategy of like being different to other people. Now they're all the same, uh, and it's become a little bit boring. Uh, as I said earlier on, like, you know, for me, the uh, the best thing about going to a pub is just being able to go and walk up to the uh, bar, not have a long wait, be able to get a cold schooner and have a, a yarn with your mates. So peak hipster. <laughs> I think one of the things about Sydney is the focus that we've seen on very basic food items like burgers, butter. <laughs> Cheese. Um, this makes me happy. Uh, yeah, it does. Yeah. It makes me happy too. And uh, I mean, one of the m- amazing things is Bar Luca, which is a, a bar in the oh, middle of is, city. This is an extraordinary story. They're what is going on? They're more money from the burgers and their drinks. They're not interested in serving drinks anymore. There's this line out for its burgers. I haven't been able to get in. But if you walk up there at uh, quarter past one, like it is actually crazy. The burgers aren't that good. Oh. Uh, you know, uh, frankly, <laughs> you know, they're a good price, but they aren't that good that it should be that crowded and there's that long a wait for tables. I, I, I don't understand it. I don't know how they do it, but there's this constant smell of barbecue that's wafting out of that place that makes me hungry every time I walk past. 
Uh, I, I must confess, I am a fan of their Blame Canada burger. It's got maple syrup on it or, you know, maple bacon and cheese and all oh. the goodness. Yeah, yeah. Um, although that place is always um, really, really super packed and look good on them. Uh, it's been phenomenal transfer- transformation. You know, Bar Luca is, uh, is really great. Uh, very quickly, anywhere else that you like? question is where don't I like <laughs> um, right answer but I think the, the top top ones for me are Hubert's uh, Grey's at the MCA and um, also Taylor's Rooftop I think is a nice addition to the Sydney bar scene fantastic you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia with us this week uh, has been the fantastic Julia Lee who's equity strategist at Bell Direct thanks for coming on Julia my pleasure thanks for having me uh, and David Scott, thanks for joining us. I'll see you next week. Cheers. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.